Synergy Autism Podcast. Blake Baxter has been exploring the concept of empathy, both in autism and in the world. Empathy is commonly known as something that autistic people don't have. But both Blake and I, we both, and so many other autistics, have experiences that tell us otherwise. So here is one of our initial conversations about empathy and autism that truly ignited my curiosity to dig deeper into the concept of empathy with him. We throw that word around, empathy. We use it now in sales. We use it on social media to share our thoughts and prayers about yet another tragedy in the world today. In the political scene, we manipulate people's emotions to sell a certain candidate. AI, even, is already pulling out elements of empathy for a number of reasons. But does it really exist at all? So come along with us to explore empathy in our world and in particular in autism, because I have found it fascinating and I welcome you to join us in this journey. Talking about empathy this week is, is I think a challenge, um, you know, cause I, part of, I think what we had talked about before, um, is that, you know, empathy seems entirely conditional and very proximate, right? It has to be people who are close to you and the further away they get from you and uh, physically and emotionally and in terms of identity, you know, what it's immediate family, extended family, friends, coworkers, people that share your identity, people that don't share your identity, empathy drops off drastically. So are you, I assume that you're thinking about what's happened in Israel and what's happening in the, mid, in the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and there, I don't, I, there hasn't, I, I can't, I can't think that there's been a time in human history when there hasn't been some form of genocide taking place. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like a continuous process. I mean, it moves around, but always somewhere. And, you know, um, I'm not putting labels on anything, but whether it's genocide or democide, which is the murder of civilians by a government, which is what we're seeing. This yeah. is just, this just happens over and over and over around the world. So when we talk about what empathy is, mm-hmm. uh, I think part of what is important to remember is, is it really doing anything? <laughs> Does it do anything? What's wrong with the notions of understanding and compassion? Where do they lack? Where we need to fill in kind of this gap of this this word, which really its definition falls somewhere between, you know, uh, the supernatural and science fiction, <laughs> right? Um, there's so much mysticism surrounding the notion that an empath is someone who for all intents and purposes is reading minds and or reading emotions. Um, or strongly I was, with somebody's emotions. But what I'm intrigued by yeah. that you talked about before is just 
how can we turn that off so easily? Or how do we turn it off? Or what is it even, what is it? If we have empathy, then where does it go when we're experiencing these kinds of things in our world? Right. So it makes you question, what the heck is it? Absolutely. I I, I think it's, again, I, I, I don't understand necessarily the usefulness of the term. It seems to me to be a much more lightweight set characteristics that we would normally apply to caring, understanding, and compassion, which all take conscious acts. And in the case of compassion, takes an actual act, whether that's whether you're giving time or money, right? You're you're doing something material to help improve someone else's life. Isn't that also subjective though? Because I'm sure that there are people who think that they are acting on behalf of their beliefs and their cultural compassion. Right. And I, I think they've, they've, they skip past understanding. <laughs> right? Or they understand in their, yeah. I don't, people I don't. think that they know what's better for other people. Than right, right, people. right. That's, that's, I would say it's not compassion. I'd say that's something that we're masquerading it as compassion. Bringing it back to autism, though, I think one mm. thing that's really interesting to me is that um, I'm not sure that I have met somebody with autism who doesn't have compassion and understanding for other people. And I'm intrigued with what you were talking about of the empathy has been kind of weaponized against people with autism. Yes. Do you want to talk about that? Well, the notion that autistic people aren't capable of empathy was generally accepted for decades. Mm -hmm. And and so in in the end, it's really an ableist slur. It's not true. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I wonder how many other words or parts of phrases that are still so commonly used today that were also part of a similar slur against other groups. Hmm. We, we yeah. right we we tend to retire or de-emphasize words that come from that legacy, but in the case of autism, we haven't done that. We've in fact elevated the word. Hmm. It, into something that is used in all kinds of situations where you're supposed to be demonstrating caring, whether that's, you know, in sales training or, you know, in medicine or research. I've worked for technology companies for, for decades, for almost 30 years, and some very large technology companies and currently working for one of the largest tech companies. Mm-hmm. And for most of that time, when we go through, I've always been in customer facing uh, roles. Most of that time, when we go through training for how to interact with customers, uh, what might be sales training, the word empathy is used a lot. 
that we should learn how to use empathy, engage empathy in our conversations with customers to try to understand their needs and problems and then present them with solutions. I think the trick here is that in all of those roles, all the people being trained have paychecks that are based on their ability to sell. Mm. Everyone's on a quota. Mm -hmm. So what happens when the solution you're presenting to the customer, it probably isn't the best one for the customer. Right. That's a place you don't go ever. You, 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 in, in sales, you, you have a number. You have to achieve that number selling the products and solutions that you are provided with. <laughs> right. That you've by been company you're, to sell. By, yeah. yeah. By the company you're working for. Yeah. So the notion of saying oh, you need to empathize with the customer. Well, you're asking me to empathize with the customer as long as they're still planning on buying mm. what I'm offering. And at the point where if I'm a good technical salesperson, if there comes a time when it's not my solution, that's actually the best solution for the customer, then what am I supposed to do? Do I empathize my way out of a sale? Or do I say, okay, my empathy's gotten me to a certain point of understanding, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to try to sell on my solution. Yeah. I'm going to set that. What, what time are you supposed to set that aside for in favor of the sale? Exactly. Or are exactly. you? And yeah. And in my personal experience, that's never gotten in the way of somebody pursuing that sale. So it I hasn't. think it's wait, wait, wait. So in other has... words, it hasn't stopped them. If they say, okay, yeah. maybe this isn't the best solution for the customer, it's still the one we're bidding. Oh, right. Okay. Got it. A hundred percent. And we're uh-huh. behind that solution hundred percent. We're gonna do everything we can, similar to like a political campaign, to put ourselves in the best light to to win the deal. So really you empathy is like being used as in lieu of convincing the person using their emotions. That's the idea. Huh. That's the idea. And I wonder if that through that whole thing, the, 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 introdu- the introduction of empathy as a notion and that whole process is useful at all. Hmm. I'm listening to what you're saying. I understand your technical need. I understand what you're trying to achieve or even your, your overarching goal. Yeah. I understand what you're trying to get at and I see a path for you to get there. I'd like to try to help you get there. Mm-hmm. That's the conversation. We don't have to bring this, this like, again, I, this kind of metaphysical notion where I'm relating and reading the emotions of the customer. <laughs> right. This is a business meeting. You can tell sentiment without having to, develop empathy and what's also very interesting right now is you know ai models sentiment is is one of the services that ai services provide so like adding sentiment to a letter or correspondence kind of thing is that what you mean reading sentiment out of a meeting or oh set of documents whether it's speech or text reading sentiment and providing it Back to you, and, and in fact, you're going to see in um, 
you know, in uh, these sorts of things that you and I are using right now, video, video mm-hmm. meetings, all kinds of AI enable services that will recap the meeting for you. Take your notes, right, make a recording. Right. Sentiment's one of the things that it that it can that it can show you. So, what do you so mean you by can, sentiment? Like the mood? Well, I can look the... through a recap of them. Yeah, exactly. I can look back through the recap of a meeting, and I can see there was a place it was overwhelmingly positive, but at one place it became negative, and I can go and I can kind of review that. We're going to see that in AI services for all kinds of for all oh, all wow. of these tools that we use. Okay, so AI is going to be another one of our conversations. But let's go back to let's go back to empathy. Right. So what's what's intriguing to me is why do you think that I mean I think of big tech companies as being much more logical linear places. So why are they bringing in and pushing empathy into these sales, do you think? Because well, I like how you technology just, companies I, I think any sales um, force of any sure right of, of anything in any in any in any market is going to experience this notion that empathy is part of the sales process yeah so if if ai can read sentiment accurately mm-hmm. in a, in a in an audio or or video or text based record is the ai using empathy mm. i i think I think the notion is kind of preposterous, right? Yeah. If the AI can do it, then is it really something so, you know, is it really this kind of um, feeling or dynamic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. This, hum- this human feature. Right. That, right. Um, I know that some of our, some of our conversations have also been around, um, whether empathy is an action or a feeling, like, can you have empathy and not act on it? Or is empathy part of acting on it? So a lot of current thinking around empathy is, is either there's different kinds of empathy Mm -hmm. or there's different phases to empathy. And one type of empathy is cognitive where Mm -hmm. you're observing and, estimating what someone else is feeling and then the other parts somatic or emotional where you then start to conjure up a similar feeling and start feeling the same way so somebody's telling you a sad story they're feeling sad you start feeling sad you start feeling sad that would be emotional empathy that's the emotional empathy but if it was definition definition we put on it yeah cognitives I, i can see that you're sad that's it i mean i've identified Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then in either case, then responding in some way. And what's that? Is, is, is supposedly, but to me, that's, again, understanding, caring, understanding, and compassion. Mm-hmm. What of, of, of that process from caring about some something to understanding it and to showing compassion, what about that process using those three terms is mm-hmm. missing that we now need to explore this notion of empathy? And in, in, in my opinion, the only thing that's missing is this kind of supernatural notion that people can read minds when they can't. Right. We've, we've been socialized and then we've developed a social ability 
to observe another person based on all sorts of things, all sorts of variables, the way they look, the way they talk, the way they're acting. So to, to form estimations, basically, as to how you think somebody is thinking. To form not... estimations. Now, yeah. why does it work? Right? It works because there, there's, 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 I mean, I guess if you're using a bell curve, right, there's, there's, an, there's a more common set of neurotypes or neurotype characteristics mm -hmm. among a large group of people. So when I make these estimations about other people, they, they have a pretty good chance of being correct, mm -hmm. especially if I share neurotypes. With mm -hmm. where it doesn't work <laughs> you know where i'm going right i do know where you're going is where neurotypes diverge yeah and then you've, you've, yeah. you've heard of double empathy right the that's a double empathy problem yeah. which is yep. which is the notion that that neurotypicals quote unquote mm -hmm. experience mostly cognitive empathy mm-hmm they, I mean, they also can experience emotional empathy, but their cognitive empathy skills are the strongest. And with autistic people, it's the emotional empathy that's the strongest to the point of being overwhelmed wow. by one's I, own emotions when experiencing other people's emotions. I, I love that. I want to stop you just for a second because I want you to say that again, because I think that is so. I think it's a notion. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. But, but I, but I it rings that, true for me yeah, in my experiences notion. with autism. Right. Sorry, go ahead. And it does for me too, but I think there's more to explore. Yeah. That that what what we would refer to as a neurotypical yeah. response to empathy is one that's primarily cognitive. Right. Just reading a situation, estimating what that person's feeling, and having a response that is either considered appropriate or appreciated or helps. Mm -hmm. Whereas with autistic people, the, the type of empathy or the phase of empathy that is stronger seems to be the emotional empathy. Yeah. Even to, even to the extent that uh, uh, an autistic person might be overwhelmed by their own emotions mm -hmm. when experiencing the emotions of another Absolutely. or witnessing, witnessing the emotions of another. I don't want to say experiencing because anyway, because I don't think people share feelings. I don't think anybody right. can read anybody's minds. And we've never discovered anything that, that, any type of connection between people, <laughs> right? Right. Other than not the, yet, anyway. Right. Well, but well, I think you know the re reciprocity, right, yeah. of taking on someone's um, behavior, their tone, language, and then we we're, we we think we're feeling the same things um, when we're really not. Everyone feels their own emotions, but again, it's it's right most of the time among neurotypes mm -hmm. and then drops off significantly to the point where at one point in time, autistic children were considered to be schizophrenic. Right. It's impossible. It would be impossible. Right. Until Kanner and Asperger came along. Right. It seemed impossible to understand what was going on with autistic children. Um, All right, a little segue. Yeah. Are you willing to share with our audience who's listening or whatever 
about your own neurotype or processing? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I thought about that and I was thinking, well, why else are you interviewing me? (laughs) (laughs) What else do I bring to the table? Um, But I also, I also thought that would be helpful for us to share how we know each other. Because I think that journey of how we know each other and then how now we've reconnected, I think that's important for people to hear, in my opinion. But what do you think? Uh, Yes. When the diagnosis, back when the diagnosis was Asperger's, Mm -hmm. I was wondering about that for myself in Mm -hmm. my, boy, I guess it's probably late 30s, early 40s. Why were you, what, why were you thinking about that? Like what was going on for you that you well, explored that? I had quit drinking mm-hmm. and found myself becoming less social. Mm-hmm. I was settling, I think, more into my authentic personality. Mm-hmm. And while that was good for me, it also brought a lot of challenges, mm-hmm. brought challenges for myself, it brought challenges for people I know, mm-hmm. brought challenges at work. And I also became pretty much obsessed with the, the writings of Philip K. Dick, who often explores the, he didn't use this, this language specifically, but often explores issues of, of neurodiversity. Hmm. But when he was writing, the term wasn't even really in use. Uh, that came later. Mm-hmm. But you look back at his writing, he has two novels with characters who are explicitly called autistic. Mm-hmm. And and which novels are those? I will look those up. Okay. One's The World That Jones Made, and I don't remember what the other one was. Okay. But he also has a lot of novels that kind of explore the notions without being explicit. One, of course, is, you know, the movie Blade Runner, which is based on his book, Do Androids mm-hmm. Dream of Electric Sheep? He he died during the filming of the movie, but he was a, a uh, an advisor on set while the movie was being filmed. Um, he either died during the filming or before it was released. Mm-hmm. And the movie itself is based on the notion that, that that human beings have developed replicants of human beings. This is a spoiler, by the way, in case no one's ever seen it. Um, and the replicants are perfect in every way, except that they don't experience empathy. Uh-huh. And human beings' reaction to that is to ban the replicants from Earth. They're only allowed to work out on the, remember, science fiction, so they're only allowed to work out on the asteroid mining, right. things like that. Yeah. And any replicant found on Earth is subject to immediate execution on site. It's pretty harsh treatment. Yes. Based on a notion that, <laughs> you know, I think is so poorly defined. Right. <laughs> and which I'm not even sure. Empathy. Not even sure it exists. Yeah. And and the huh. um, I'll, I'm going to ruin the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. But you know, at the end of the movie, we find out that it's not true. You're gi- yeah, you're giving you're giving people enough. Uh, I'm giving warning. it away, but you know that they have they have plenty of empathy f- for each other, mm-hmm. and they do experience empathy. And in fact, a replicant saves the life of the man who's trying to kill him. 
Mm-hmm. After, you know, he wins a battle, you know, wins a fight with that guy and he's hanging off the side of a skyscraper about to die. Mm-hmm. And the replicant saves his life. And there's a lot of conversation around this movie, around these topics. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, if you're looking for these kind of essays, they, they do use the word Asperger's. So if you say, you know, look at Blade Runner and Asperger's, you're, you'll get a bunch of material. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I became obsessed with his writing. And in fact, one of his books, which is The Scanner Darkly, and I'm not bragging or anything, but I must have read it 15 times. Wow. And every time I got to the last page, I just went back to the first page and I read it again. I've never experienced anything like that. I couldn't really quite explain to anybody why uh. I, was, I was doing that. But for the better part of the year, I think it was the only thing I read. I read it over and over and over again. And I'm going to spoil this book too, um, which is also a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it's, it's absolutely brilliant when it comes to exploring the notion of neurotypes. It's about an undercover narcotics officer who as part of his role takes a drug uh-huh. daily. And that drug has the effect of degrading the function of the corpus callosum which Hmm. is the bundle of nerves that connects the two hemispheres of your brain. Right. This isn't in the book at all, but we have discovered through brain scans that the corpus callosum of autistic people is structured differently. And in fact is smaller. In some studies. In some studies. And it also, it it also seems to be very, um, very correlated with savantism. Oh, interesting. Is are, is that along the same lines as like uh, hyperconnectivity? Like yes, increase. Yeah. Okay. Increased hyperconnectivity of other parts of the brain because of the, the yep. diminished function of the corpus callosum. Yep. And you can look online. Uh, ask the chatbot to show you an image <laughs> of <laughs> Temple Grandin's brain solving a math problem. Yeah, I've heard an of image that. Of her and uh, a neurotypical brain solving the same problem and. You know, it's, it seems yeah. really clear what's going on. Yeah. So in the novel, that's what happens to the main character, who's played by great effect to Keanu Reeves in the, by Keanu Reeves in the movie. Um, and so what ends up happening because he's he he's he's undercover and he's pretending to be somebody he isn't. Uh huh. Right. He's masking. Mm. And at night, he has to go review the surveillance tapes. He starts to not be aware that the person he's looking at in the tapes is himself and launches an investigation into himself because of the degraded function of his degraded brain function, his brain damage that's taking place. I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating study in masking and losing yourself. And what's that? You're like my... It's called a scanner darkly. Scanner Darkly, like you keep me watching <laughs> very interesting movies. Scanner yes. Darkly. So it's one of those movies that's as good as the book. Ah, okay. So and the book is the same name. Yes. Okay. And the book's excellent. Oh. The movie's great too. It's in it's it's kind of animated. It's called that Rotovision, where they take a live action film and they animate over the top of it. Oh wow! But there are these special effects scenes that kind of where it blends all seamlessly together. Huh. Um, but it's got Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder and Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson. Oh, wow. really, okay. it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great. Sold- Scanner darkly. Okay, so you're reading start- things, watching these things, and going, "Hey, why am I wanting to read this book over I and know, over why again?" Am I reading this book over and over again. Why are these these kind of like 
you know, my disposition to, to social activities and to other people, you know, seemed to be a little different or a little off, right? I was looking for an answer and I, 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 I thought I did some online Asperger quizzes, you know, like the, the AQ, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and I, you know, ranked kind of high. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never went for the, I never went for the diagnosis, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but after COVID, mm-hmm. I realized that I, I did want to know one way or the other, because the COVID lockdown to me was, I saw a lot of people I'm very close to really struggling with the mm-hmm. isolation during the lockdown and the lack of socialization. And I realized that I was not. Uh, not in the same way, mm-hmm. you know. I was actually, I wasn't, I wasn't suffering from the lack of contact, and and so I said, I I I want, you know, at this point, I think I, I I'd, I'd like to know one yeah. or the other, and I did some more online testing, and still getting high scores, so to speak, and mm-hmm. so I went to a neuropsychologist, and I got a full evaluation. And that came back with level one mm-hmm. autism. How did that feel when you got that diagnosis? I mean, I, I had lots of feelings. Yeah. Lots of feelings, relief, uh, sadness, mm-hmm. you know, joy, regret. <laughs> kind of all of them. All over the place. The one thing that, that, that that occurred that was really fascinating is I was just flooded with memories for months. Mm. For months, I was having just constantly throughout the day. Not that I was even trying; I could be doing anything. Mm-hmm. Memories just coming back over and over and over again, and in each in each case, the memory made more sense. Whatever yeah. I was remembering, I was like, "That's why. Uh, that's why I couldn't figure that out." That's why I've always and 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 just knocking them down one after the other. I mean, I, I mean, just I can't even say it was hundreds or thousands of memories. Mm-hmm. Process that went on for months and months and months, and it didn't just end, but it started to sp- kind of spread out a little bit. I'm still having those moments. Spread out in the sense of and how often it was. How often mm. and how I was able to get back and kind of focus on my everyday life, but they Could still you, happen, and it's been well over a year. Would you be willing to share one? that you that really stood out that helped the autism diagnosed help explain so i don't yes i will i i I don't want to um get into that well that could be explained by other things (laughs) because i have to kind of take them you know what i mean yeah yeah because but 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 taken as a as a overall as an overall group Mm -hmm. the 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 autism diagnosis kind of I, sometimes I, I say it's 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 like ev- the theory of evolution. It's simple, it's elegant, and it seems to fit every case, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, one I, I think you and I have talked about before was I was in third or fourth grade, and we were at recess at school, and the bell rang, and everybody went running back, and I saw a yellow ball, mm-hmm. a kickball, used to call it. Um maybe they still do i don't know a yellow ball rolling away from all the kids down the yard towards 
the fence where it would just sit by itself. Uh And I became totally overwhelmed with emotions Mm. for that ball, for an inanimate object. To this day, it's a painful memory for me of how terrible I felt that it was abandoned, Mm -hmm. that we had spent whatever, 30, 45 minutes using it as an instrument of joy, and now it was just we didn't care. Yeah. And wanting to retrieve it, but a teacher was like, you have to get in line, get over here, you know, recess is over. I just couldn't understand how adults (laughs) did not recognize that I was trying to go (laughs) retrieve this ball that nobody seemed to care about anymore because the bell rang. Yeah. And I was really, really upset. And it lasted with me for a long time. And it's still when I bring back the memory of how I felt at that time, I can feel that intense, whatever you want to call it. I almost said emotional empathy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, And it is said, yeah, you probably read this, that that autistic people tend to relate more or better towards animals and inanimate objects. I haven't just read that. I mean, I've definitely experienced oh, that with a number of my clients in right, where, especially um, having to do with uh, items in their room, for example, might have, um, I've been told that, you know, it depends on where the item wants to be in the room rather than right. where, you know, rather right. than the person deciding where the item wants to be. So that that experience now the 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 the, the application of the of the diagnosis to uh-huh. that memory all of a sudden I'm no longer I still have the emotions but I don't have that extra layer of confusion as to why I was feeling them. Mm-hmm. It kind mm-hmm. you know it makes sense and it's not just the one experience. Right. Um, I have throughout my career had a pattern of starting a new job being really, really good at it, developing kind of an expertise mm-hmm. and uh, being a go-to resource in that job. And then at the six-year point, mm. developing or, or like a rapidly developing feeling of needing to get out of there mm. after having a number of experiences that I came away from confused where I started mm. to so it wasn't because you got bored. It was more about your confu- level of confusion that you couldn't handle I, anymore. I, I start, well, what happened is I start to show more of my true personality and then mm-hmm. things become complicated and more difficult. Um, I've been in, as an adult, <laughs> mm-hmm. was physically attacked by a manager. Wow. Um, was, I believe, fired from a job because I didn't react the way somebody wanted me to in a meeting. Um, And it wasn't that I like freaked out or yelled or cursed or did something, you know, I had a a feeling about what needed to be done in that meeting. And, and, and that kind of led my behavior and a higher up in the organization lost his mind after the meeting and cursed at me. Um, said I did absolutely the wrong thing and um and I 
I should have, and, and I walked, and I and again walked away from that experience very confused yeah. and feeling totally justified in the way that I had behaved, and but not able to understand how nobody else could see that. I uh, that's one example. Um, it just and so it just seems that I, I have this kind of, and that applies to other things in my life too, not just jobs. I, there's a lot of things I've done for six. It seems to be about six years for some reason, and then I reach a point where it's like I've got to go. <laughs> it's no longer comfortable. Well, and I think that's interesting that what you just said of it's almost like when you start to bring your mask down, when you start feeling like yeah. you're wanting to, you're feeling more confident probably in the job. And so you're allowing your true self to come out. And then for that to be celebrated all this time. And then when you your true self comes out, you're not doesn't even make sense right right and in my and, and since then since receiving the diagnosis i actually frequently come up to a point where i'm going to say or do something and think that's not what anybody wants to hear so <laughs> i don't do it right so the and and then i think that's working it's it's uh and there have been times where I've said this had to say to somebody you know that's the way that I understand it mm -hmm. and I, I'm, I've disclosed at work my mm -hmm. diagnosis to some of the some of the people I work with the people I work closest with and have have found that to be very helpful not only for my own understanding but for other people's understanding of where I'm coming from where I'm trying to go you know in a conversation and whatever right so the the enabling of it has also helped convince me that it's true <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's working um the framework for understanding my interactions with other people hmm. when you say enabling of it makes it seem like it's true can you elaborate on that it, my, my my engaging with it as a tool my understanding of the diagnosis Mm, okay. And uh, I'm able to, in a different way, kind of, I mean, we all filter and we all add levels of evaluation to what we're about to say and do. Sure. Well, not all of us, and, but we should. Well, not, not all of us, that's true. <laughs> right? It's smart to um, do so on some level. <laughs> yeah. So, so and in this case, this is an, an, an uh, a tool, I keep saying that, but that's my favorite best word, or you know, a new filter that I can apply mm -hmm. uh, that seems to have real merit because it's 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 an, it's helping me get through things that I don't think I otherwise would have been able to. Hmm. By disclosing to other people that you may process things differently through an autism lens. That's that's part of it. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I just remember myself. That I'm oh. processing this through an autism lens, oh, okay. uh -huh. and and what is is what I'm about to say, what the neurotypical people in the room really want to hear, or should I moderate, modify what I'm going to say to better but under to their understanding, which which again is something that everyone does. Everyone does it, but I feel like that I hear that sort of story repeatedly in 
larger corporation kind of situations for employees. And um, how I interpret it is that a person who may process through an autism lens, whatever, autistic processing, um, might be a little bit more efficient and logical and linear about a situation and not want to kind of go into the debate or the dynamic elements of something and just not understand why wouldn't we just do it, you know, the most efficient way? (laughs) Why are we needing to do it to please these people or to make, you know, whatever? Is that true? Is that what you experience? Yeah. Yeah. Which then doesn't make really sense to me either, to be honest, that you're having to dampen that. Well, in, in the end, everybody works a job to make money for the most part right i mean there are there there are there there are certainly people who (laughs) find their calling and are able to make a living doing that but i think it's very rare i know you're one (laughs) (laughs) so now you you can get yourself into a career or a role or a job that's at least interesting enough and maybe it change, you know, it changes you. Maybe it educates you in 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 a, in a way that uh, that something does become interesting, and that's been true for me. You know, I've certainly I certainly find the work that I do interesting. I brought myself into this this place, and I wouldn't have anticipated it at the beginning when I got into this business because it was just a job at the time. Oh, I like, remember. I remember. Yeah. So when I met you, you were yeah. an artist through and through. Well, you, you mean the fact that I that I was that I was broke. <laughs> I was broke and hungry. Uh, well, and drinking too much, and you know. I mean, uh, I think yes. that that was part of. I remember I you was going for it. That you I need to just it. go for it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like it changed you to? Because that was even before the diagnosis, but you decided to go into an IT field. Well, so decided is a. Is, uh, <laughs> I had to get a job. Yeah. And at the time, um, uh, technology was 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 hiring mm. was hiring and hiring people that that weren't trained and had no experience. But if they could do it, they would hire you. And there was lots of on the job training in tech in the we're talking about the early 90s yeah yeah companies where money was just being infused they were making money and so that was the industry and i was in california that was the industry that you could go to if you didn't have experience Mm -hmm. didn't have training but you were smart and you were willing to work that would be the place to be you know 150 years earlier and maybe it was gold mining i don't know right yeah but at that time it was tech yeah. And and as I started to kind of grow into it, oh, this is another thing that <laughs> that's explained. I became very interested in the notion that messages change what people understand based on their format. Mm, explain more. And that's something that's commonly understood and and, and built around today, which is that that if I say something to you or I write it down 
or I record it. I record it as audio. I record it as video. Mm -hmm. I write it down on a piece of paper. I write it in a, in a note on a card. I write it in an email. I write it in a chat. I write it in a text on your phone. All of those messages, even it could be the exact same message, are going to land differently based on the format. Context. And I was. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. And context. Yeah. Yeah. The, okay. I mean, the format is the context. That's right. a very good point, right? Yeah. And I, it became fascinating to me how that could be. And I understand it more now today, right? From an uh, from an from an autistic lens, of course, because we're we're because every everything about how you communicate matters. It's not just the words. Yeah. Down to it could be this, the exact same text in the exact same language, just being presented in different ways. Yeah. So so help me and and the listener understand how how you discovered that through going into it well because i ended up um the well i so it so i, I was in tech uh, working for technology companies it is um more specifically applying technology oh okay in an environment to make it work you know got it so i should say tech industry in the tech industry tech industry tech industry it. It, it is information technology it's 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 close but i'm more general in the tech industry right okay. software and hardware manufacturers okay um one of the 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 second job that i had and this was just totally random it was a, it was an ad i answered was for a, a a unified messaging company and a unified messaging company is a company that makes a a server Today, it would just be a service, but a server that takes different types of messages and presents them to you in a single uh, interface. So that might mean look, uh, seeing your fax and your voicemail in your email, which today is oh. very common, but yeah. in the early 90s was not. Right. Okay. Okay. For example. Yeah. Right. Mixing different types of of media together and presenting to you in the same way. Now, if you do that, then you could be saying, well, I'm seeing voicemail and fax in my email. But that could also mean calling in over the telephone and listening to your email through your voicemail. Sure. Right. So you and I and I realized right then that if I'm listening to voicemail through my email interface versus listening to voicemail, for instance, on my phone while I'm driving, the context is different and the, the the meaning of the message is different. Somehow it's different. And of course it was Marshall McLuhan who said the media is the message. Hmm. So what I also what I discovered was the people who were really good at using this technology were choosing the type of message they would send based on what they were trying to communicate. If I hadn't I'm ever thought about it, but yeah. Sitting absolutely. at my desk and I, I can't talk to somebody directly and I know I have to send them a message and I have three or four different ways to send that message. I'm thinking about which one is most appropriate for that. Sure. Absolutely. For that context, for what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to do. And that can be as as obvious as I need to send them a large amount of information that they need to read. Obviously, I'm going to send them an email. I'm not going to call them up on the phone and talk for 10 minutes. Into well, that's even the, the age old, you're not supposed to break up with somebody over text. Which right. I think everyone does today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <It's, you> know. 
Well, and here's the thing, you know, I have nieces and nephews. I call them. They never answer the phone. I, yeah. for a while, I was like, they're so rude. They never answer. Yeah. They don't talk on the phone. No. It's all text-based. If I so text them, of- I get responses right away. Yeah, absolutely. So many of my families have young adults at home or teens at home and they text within the same house. Dinner's ready instead of, yeah. yeah. So I became really, really interested in that. And I kind of became an expert in that, that, that part of communication technology, which is, was called unified messaging. Now it's called unified communications. And I had uh, a number of global financial customers in the late 90s, early aughts that were not moving to this new technology because they had legal policies in place regarding the handling of different types of messages. And those policies were framed by regulations. That regulation could be an SEC regulation. It could be HIPAA, you're talking Mm -hmm. about, right? It could be Sarbanes-Oxley. But the regulations are then interpreted by teams of attorneys who then help companies create these policies. And these companies were not moving to these new messaging systems because they justifiably felt that there was legal precedent saying that certain types of messages, regardless of what was in those messages, that certain types of messages could be retained and deleted on different timelines than other types of messages. So for example, an email could be subject to a five or seven year retention policy, but a voicemail could not. Why? Because Hmm. at the time, this is no longer true, which is really what's fascinating about it. At the time, it would have been an undue burden Hmm. financially to save voicemail, which is a much larger file than than an email. Right. Right. You think of an email that has 500 words in it versus a voicemail that has 500 words in it. The, the size of the message itself is much larger. And There's. storage was very expensive. Right. In particular, archive storage. Plus, you could, in a legal discovery, you could scan an email database for emails that had certain words in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Doing that for voicemail, m- much heavier burden. Yeah. Right? You have to do a speech to text translation and at the time that technology was incredibly expensive and didn't work very well so they had different so you could have an identical message which is burn all these documents the sec is breaking down the door and if i say that in a voicemail i'm perfectly free to delete that after 30 days but if i save it in an email it's got to be safe for seven years that's insane Uh to me Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that got me like even deeper into the into the like the technology. And I really started trying to figure that out and helping these these companies get through that process. Now, today, that's that's a lot of that's changed. Right. Because the storage costs have plummeted. There's all kinds of technology. I mean, AI does speech to text every day. Yeah. Right? We all use it even as consumers. So those things change. But the, the message itself didn't change. <laughs> If well, you're talking so, about a specific message, it doesn't well, change at I, all. With that, I think it's so interesting because in, in my world, I'm frequently having conversations with people, doctors or counselors or whatever, and HIPAA protected and things like that. 
where if somebody or even my clients, if they don't want something recorded that could be used, you know, against somebody or if they want it to be more confidential or something, they're going to call on the phone, which is changing. Yes. Ah, interesting. Yes, exactly. Okay. And, so, and so and back then when voicemail was still a little bit harder to get to, uh-huh. executives would frequently use voicemail networking to send sensitive messages versus email. Uh-huh. Because they know that the message they sent via voicemail networking would be deleted. Yeah. After a certain retention time, usually short, 30 days, could be even shorter, could be seven days. Right. Versus sending that sensitive information email, which would then be subject under new regulations. Right. Five, seven years of retention, creating legal liability. Okay. So you started getting intrigued with the fact that different messages have different meaning based on their context or their um, medium. Right. Right. And so that's when you started to wonder more about kind of your own processing around that or no but i i think like i always wonder like where did that come from so like i always feel like if i'm really interested in something you know what's the i want to understand why i want to understand how it relates to me why and 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 also why is why and you know why is my mind wrapping around those concepts when there's all this other information and knowledge and things going on in the world that I really don't, you know, either I'm not interested in or don't have an aptitude for. Why uh-huh. are these certain things? Um, so intriguing that, to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, viewed through an autistic lens, it makes all kinds of sense. Mm. Right? I mean, even in conversation, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> right? I just said the exact same thing three different ways, totally yep. different meaning. Yep. Based on prosody. Yes. Uh-huh. And and cultural. Yeah, absolutely. Language and cultural similarities. Mhm. Right? Whereas as soon as you cross over those boundaries, a lot of those things fall apart. The inflection of the way you say things changes. Mhm. Depending on again where you are. So that sort of thing as well. And then I think about, again, the, the difference in the differences in, in relatable experience between neurotypes and how much of that is really affected by how things are described, exhibited, and explained by two people in conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's so much to unpack there when you talk about neurodiversity. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Those are some of my experiences. <laughs> okay, so we've circled around from we've gone from full empathy and what's happening in our world to your discovering your own autism. Is that an okay way of saying it? Yeah. Um to uh yeah, the tech industry and messaging some, and yeah, prox- some, yeah, interesting some technical conversation. Yeah, and you know my art 
again, I'll use the word lens or my view into what I'm doing here. It's just expanded greatly. The notion of repetition, regimentation, mm. pattern recognition, small changes completely changing the emotional element of any given yeah. context, right? Um, is it is 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 what I'm making, right? This is what I this is what I do here, and the discovery that, you know. I was working in safe sand probably five or six years before my diagnosis. Right? This is children's safe sand I've been using. Yeah, so realizing that sensory children's play sand therapy. Yeah, sensory. Yeah, I've been yeah. Using a sensory. I've been working in aggregates in my art, right? Aggregates. Well, like you were using sand in your art when I'm. I mean, around the time yeah. that we hung out yeah, in college. Since college. Yeah. 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 I have some of my work still from college and it's got, I was using diatomaceous earth. That's right. Network, and then yeah. right after that one, after I graduated, I was doing work with um, um, coal slag. So coal slag is used as a sandblasting medium, but it's very similar to a dark black sand and asphalt and, mm -hmm. um, cement crushed granite crushed lava working in these these different types of aggregates at all different feelings and, and react differently to to polymer and and light interesting that same what you were just saying a minute ago of even just the medium changes small changes to it have great meaning as well yes yes Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Synergy Autism Podcast, where we bring research, information, and people together to best understand and love those with autism, also known as autistic individuals. Check out my website for lots of additional links, like my Facebook account, Instagram account, blogs that I have written, videos, and even courses that are both free and some that I have labored with some wonderful colleagues um, to produce just for you. And contact me with questions and ideas for future podcasts. I'm here. I'm listening. Till next time.